right, hello. This is my part on the political development in Latin America and the Caribbean within the years of 1945 and 1980. So first off, like the rest of the world, there was 30-some countries and dependencies in Latin America and the Caribbean, and they all experienced social, economic, and political changes between the years 1945 and 1980. So the geopolitical forces of the Cold War affected Latin America and the Caribbean, and the responses of these countries varied greatly from the continuation of democracy to populist movements to outright conflict and revolution, as well as establishment of authoritarian regimes. So for the first country that I would like to talk about, it's going to be Cuba. And Cuba's proximity to the USA was what sparked the initial geopolitical interests. And in the turn of colonialism, Cuba was super important with the sugar plantations that they had for Spain, as well as the ability to house African slaves on there and get free labor. So Cuba was liberated by the USA, and the USA used the excuse of Spain blowing up a U.S. cruiser called the Marine to invade and get Spain out of there because they loved having a geopolitical ally in the Latin America. So after they liberated them, they installed the Platt Amendment in 1901, which established U.S. rule over Cuba. And with this, they were able to form areas of interest like Guantanamo Bay, and other Cuban assets under their control. And because of this, they needed someone in charge. So they elected under the table Fulgencio Batista, and he was in power from 1940 to 1944, and again in 1952 to 1959. So at first he was elected president, and the two words that would be used to describe his time in power, both terms, would be corrupt and non-democratic. So throughout this time, there was a guy named Jose Martí, and he formed the Authentico Party, which led to the Ortodoxo Party. So seeing as Batista was elected president in 1940 to 44 through shady reasons, in 1952, after controlling the government from the shadows, he decided to lead a military coup that formed an authoritarian government with him as a leader. Because of this, Cuban citizens were struggling economically as he only cared in catering towards the United States government. The main form of Cuban economy was based on the sugarcane harvest, like previously mentioned, and this followed the boom and bust cycle. The problem with this was that it wasn't always the sugarcane season, and they relied heavily on the foreign economies and if anyone was willing to buy the sugarcane from them. So because of this economic instability, there was re rebellions that began to happen. The first rebellion, led by Fidel Castro, a future leader, was deemed a failure, but he was super popular, so then he got exiled to Mexico. This would be known as the M26-7 or Movimiento 26 de Julio. And in Mexico, Castro and his brother Raul, who also participated in the re revolution, met Che Guevara, and he began inspiring them. So they returned to Cuba in 1956 and found refuge in the Sierra Maestra Mountains. With Che Guevara, they began engaging in guerrilla warfare. And in the next three years, they took Havana in 1959. With Fidel Castro as leader, he began expropriation or nationalization of the U.S. business for Cuba. So basically, he got all of the U.S.-owned businesses that were located in Cuba and made them Cuban assets. So because of this, USA obviously didn't like having all their businesses and invested money taken away from them. They began to boycott Cuba and, ex and send tariffs and basically kind of blackballed them from the rest of the world. So Castro... Socially, he was able to raise wages and literacy rates for all the people in Cuba, 
Everyone in Cuba was excited because it was a new leader and they felt free from foreign interference for the first time in forever. However, Castro also ruled with authoritarian means and former pro-Batista officers were executed and show trials which were demonstrated to show his power. So Cuba would be ruled by Castro for a while and after the Bay of Pig Pigs incidents, Cuba decided to sever ties completely with the United States by coming out as a socialist country. However, many of their policies weren't socialism or communism as, as many would know of the USSR. The Bay of Pigs incident was when John F. Kennedy and the USA were training soldiers to go liberate Cuba again from Castro. However, because, of they, because the soldiers used to be Cuban exiles, there wasn't much training they could do, and the people of Cuba weren't intent on giving up on Castro just yet because they saw the changes like literacy rates and wages. At one point in time, the literacy rates were super high in Cuba, almost 90-some percent, and everyone was happy, but the USA wasn't known about this. So they invaded the, they sent an invasion to the Bay of Pigs, and it, would, it ultimately smothered immediately. And because of this, the USA was embarrassed and pulled out of Cuba. So in 1975, the USA couldn't stop Cuba from trading with other countries like Mexico, Italy, or Spain. And other Latin America countries saw Cuba resist USA as a sign for hope. Okay, now, now on to populist leaders, and I'm going to focus on Argentina and Brazil. So Argentina exported raw goods like every other Latin American country in the 1900s, as they were not super developed yet, but they were in the developing stage. And be around this time, the Great De Depression happened, and uni unionism began blowing up within all the workers in order to avoid a catastrophe like the Great Depression again. So for politics in Argentina, there was a bunch of oligarchic parties which were more concerned with conservative ideals and money and land interests than social reform. And the military was split between two sides, the old school elitists and the young modest soldiers that wanted something new. So for populist leaders, populism became popular because they used nostalgia for the old and idea of the new age for young. Basically, they were playing both sides and getting favor from both. An important populist leader for Argentina is Juan Domingo Perón. In 1943, the Grupo de Oficiales Unidos was established and they established a military regime in Argentina. Perón was the army secretary, minister of labor, and war minister of this group. So at the time he wasn't fully in power yet, but he was slowly gaining popularity. So while in power, he, he was able to unite the workers as well as appease the entrepreneurs as the minister of labor so that he could play both sides. He controlled them both, and he began favoring those workers. And in 1945, he was elected the vice president and began siding more with the labor unions because there was a high percentage of the population that was the working and middle class. These people were called peronistas. They were people that, su that supported him. However, in October of 1945, he was imprisoned, and all of his supporters were angry. He was then immediately released, and he began to form his own party called the Labour Party, and he won presidential election. He was in power from 1946 to 1955. However, he left Argentina for 17 years due to exile, which I'll get into later, and he was re-elected again in 1972. So for his ideology, Perón represented the common people, and he used impassioned radio speeches and balcony speeches that were common with most authoritarian leaders. Along this, he used authoritarian means to help the common people and he used ultra-nationalistic views to gather their support and connect with them. 
And this worked because Argentinians resented foreign investment. So whenever he began talking about nationalism, they, they, they agreed with him immediately. And he also appeared middle class from the outside to connect more with his supporters. Even more, his wife sided with the descamisados, or shirtless ones, and she helped the poor and built schools and hospitals because she herself grew up poor. In 1952, Argentino workers were some of the highest regarded and had the best conditions in Latin America. And this says a lot because in 1930s, they were an agricultural economy and they were able to quickly shift over to an industrial economy in the 1960s. So that's 30 years they were able to change their they were, able, they were able to turn their whole economy around. So as for the USA, because you know the USA always wants to meddle with the Latin American Caribbean, they backed opposition called the Radical Party because the Radical Party would let them invest in what they wanted. But by 1947, Argentina gained economic independence, which was rare in Latin America, by paying $600 million to the USA and $45 million to France. So... Back to Perón, he was exiled in 1955, and this was because his, his followers were almost becoming a cult personality. With this, he, he needed to lead, lead more, lean more towards authoritarian views and began becoming more violent. But after returning in 1972, he was re-elected again as president. However, he was too old to do anything. So basically, the leader, Perón, used populist ideas of the working class to unify Argentina and free them from foreign, the foreign holder that they had on the economy. Okay, now for Brazil. So kind of like, uh, kind of like Cuba previously mentioned, Brazil was vulnerable to the boom and bust because of the Great Depression and the foreign reliance. However, for them, it wasn't sugarcane; it was coffee, coffee beans, and coffee exports. So for for their populist leader, his name is Gutelio Vargas, and he came from Partido Republicano. The Rio Grande Nesse party. And this party hated political elites like coffee growers and exporters because they felt like they were taking all of the credit for all the hard farm workers' work and monopolizing the money. And he was elected finance minister in 1926. Some four years later, there was a military coup in 1930 where he was able to rise to power using his charisma and his strong leadership. So rising to power here, he was not the president of Brazil, but he was the leader of this group. And he was able to centralize power, making everyone report to him. And if a state didn't report to him or follow his rule, he would send the federal troops, like in the case of Sao Paulo. So what happened was he was able to neutralize military groups, and he was finally elected president in 1934 via dubious and corrupt reasons. So for the ideology, the previous constitution of Brazil was not what he liked. He wanted strong nationalism in it and he wanted the foreign influence to be minimalized. So foreigners were restricted from owning land. This, this ideology was called Estado Novo, and there was fascist, fascist hints putting Vargas as an authoritarian leader. He also liked capitalism, as capitalism helped Brazil a lot in World War II. They were able to buy and sell different war ammunition and ammunition from both allies and, alli and Axis powers. In 1942, they decided to join the allies as they could make good relations with all the allies like the USA or the UK. And with the Estado Novo, he wanted to make Brazil a modern state. So for social policies, he was able to garner popular support from middle class workers via minimum wage, raising the minimum wage, altering weekly rests and eight hour workdays, 
as well as work security after 10 years of working. This part where social, the social net of strengthening any working and middle class, basically what boosted him in popularity. He was able to tell the people that they, that workers with him as leader would be protected. So Vargas was even called father of the poor by the media. And he used like every other example so far, nationalism to strengthen their bonds. And he showed off Brazilian greatness via expensive and extravagant architecture. However, Brazil, for the majority of the country, remained underdeveloped and inflation hurt the, the country even more. So for the economy, their plan was to industrialize in the 1930s. And they put tariffs on exports of goods and centralized taxes so it wouldn't be state by state led and instead it'd be a complete centralized government. And when joining the Allies in 1943, Brazil, like previously mentioned, was able to connect closer to the USA. And because of this, the USA invested in Brazil, so Brazil would be able to manufacture heavy industry in their own land and centralize all Brazilian resources like oil and electricity. In fact, in 1950, Vargas created state-owned oil and electric companies called Petrobras for oil and Electrobras for electricity. So for the pol political policies in Brazil, there was like, again, used authoritarian and populist practices to rule. He also suspended the constitution and ruled by edict. So this was him kind of saying stuff and people would have to go along and he wouldn't really follow the constitution, constitution word by word. Because of this, people might think this was a tyrannical form of government and it kind of was because he oppressed the Paulistas or the rebellion from Sao Paulo who accused him, but also he wasn't just this evil guy. He wanted a more open constitution and he, a more modern one that included letting women vote. So he wasn't leaning directly for communism and fascist, and he attacked both. But his rule was ended by a coup in 1945, which ultimately led Brazil back to the coffee, coffee claims for economy and the more developing nation instead of industrialization. Kind of the opposite of Argentina, where Argentina went from the agrarian economy to industrialization. Brazil kind of went the opposite from industrialization to back to agrarian with coffee. So the elections were held and General Enrico Dutra won and he created a, a new constitution. He got rid of the Estado Novo and he made it more to the one from the 1934, the previous one before Estado Novo was drafted. And communism was banned, so that was a plus sign for Brazil. And in 1950, he ran for president and won. And he asked for the USA assistance in developing Brazil's energy sector. So the problem with bringing Brazil back to this economy was that Vargas was doing so much for Brazil's economy in terms of industrializing and making it more modern, like the energy sector and helping the USA. However, once the coup happened, the economy was in shambles and Vargas ended up committing suicide because he didn't know how to handle it. So for the treatment of opposition, Vargas punished communists and used World War II as an excuse to apprehend German entrepreneurs and in the 1950s, there was dissatisfaction in the government because they were censoring the press. Like previously mentioned, he began going off of his word instead of enabling the rights of the citizens. And there was also a failed assassination of a journalist, which caused uproar in the military as the rights of the citizens were just being trampled on. So for democracy and crisis in Latin America, I'm going to be focusing on the years 1945 and 1980 and economic reasons. So there was a po post-war period called the import substitution 
industrialization or the ISI. And what this was, it, it, it's, a, it's a period of post-war economy that brought improvements in employment and wages and transferred the technology from the developed countries into the Latin America areas. So government supported capitalism and this worked because Latin America wasn't relying so much on developed countries for their product. They were able to, to manufacture and sell their own goods almost. But in the 1960s through 1980s, there was a breakdown in this post-war economy and this created economic distress. And this was ultimately because there was too many people that didn't believe in it and it was unable to fully strengthen and people just didn't really give it a chance. And populist leaders like Vargas and Perón used a strong, large w population of working and middle classes, which caused the downfall of elected leaders. And politics became polarized due to the Cold War, and left and right ideologies began becoming more and more extreme. Also, this didn't help because the USA was constantly trying to help prevent communism, and that there was some Soviet influence trying to spread communism. So the rise of a military dictatorship. I'm going to be looking at Chile for this one. So in Chile, before this, there was three political parties that all fought for power. It was comp compromised of the right, capitalist that had capitalistic values and Western values, the left that valued socialism and communism, and a more central party that was called the Christian Democratic Party, or PCD for short. So in the 1964, the PCD won the presidential election, and the man that won was, was Mr. Frey who became the president. However, the other two parties weren't satisfied with this and the extremes of the left and right continued to grow. The parties, the biggest parties was for the left, the revolutionary leftist movement and for the right, the national party. So Frey, the president and a PCD member, lowered the voting age to 18 in order to promote voting among younger, younger citizens. And the Chilenization was promoted by him that saw Chile slowly purchase 51% of shares in US-owned copper companies in order to get Chile to own the businesses that they had on their land. And he also refined loans from World Bank and Inter-American Development Bank because Chile needed money and that was a way to get it. But in the end, PCP failed on promises that they were delivering. And in 1970, Salvador Allende became president despite the USA pressure of not wanting him. So financial chaos was happening throughout Chile, and citizens were unsure how a leftist country would handle the economy, seeing as Allende was from the left. And in the years 1970 through 1973, there was a deep divide between the six major leftist parties that, that were in power in Chile. And Allende continued agrarian reform from Frey that he was pushing, and he also nationalized business like banks and other forms of economy. Allende reached out to Soviet blockade in Cuba in order to strengthen ties. And this was during the tense period of the Cold War. So Allende's socialist government in Chile became a focus for the bipolar conflict of capitalism versus communism at the time with the Cold War. And the U.S. blockade of Chile intensified and inflation soared. Because of this, extreme left and right groups formed shock groups, which were basically made up of volunteers in order to fight for them. And they fought in the streets between each other and everyone in Chile felt the country splitting in two. Even education became polarized because there was a decree passed by Allende called Escuela Nueva, Escuela, Escuela Nacional Unitada, which was criticized by the right and the central. 
the PDC and the National Party. And they argued that Allende overstepped his powers as president when um, drafting this decree. And in August of 1973, Allende resigned, giving power to Augusto Pinochet, fearing civil war or revolution because both sides threatened if he didn't resign or leave. So at the time, women weren't known to be super loudly in the, in the world of politics. However, Chilean women loudly protested to the div difficult living conditions as they couldn't support their family. A majority of them were being were housewives, so they, they needed to do something. On 11th of September, 1973, Pinochet staged an official coup, ending the government of Allende, who shot himself as his palace was burned and bombed. The military, after taking control, suspended the rights of citizens and press, causing all political parties to be prohibited and elections suspended indefinitely. Pinochet basically ruled with the military as, it, as his iron fist. So for economic and social policies, the censorship and curfews were normal under Pinochet, and the military government was put into place, and they were trying to get rid of all leftist values from public offices, universities, and the judiciary, purging anyone who stood in their way. Pinochet wanted to return to a mixed socialist capitalist economy, and he turned towards a neoliberal free market with the help of some U of Chicago graduates that were Chilean. And... What he was able to do was that they privatized state-owned companies and inserted Chile into the global markets. They, in, they enacted economic reforms protecting and promoting Chile's entrepreneurial sector. They did this by promoting tourism because Chile, despite all the social conflict and all the nasty stuff that was going on there, it was a pretty place with beautiful beaches. And like previously mentioned, two-thirds of women were housewives in Chile. So Pinochet's wife decided to come up with a social program called Mother's Centers, which would basically give out 70,000-some sewing machines in order to promote the housewife ideologies where they could take care of the family at home. The problem with this was that there wasn't any legal repercussions of trying to save the economy. There was like Band-Aids over Band-Aids trying to slowly fix it. There wasn't a permanent fix for all the economic instability. And... The repression and treatment of opposition. So leftists were detained, tortured, and sometimes even made to disappear. And the, the secret police responsible for human rights abuses was called the Dirección de Inteligencia Nacional. And they were even responsible for murders inside and outside the country. And human rights abuse was the main criticism under Pinochet. There was discovery of, of bodies in many rural towns. There was murder of union leader Tupacel Jimenez murder of two teachers, and even people burned alive. Overall, 100,000 Chileans were tortured or exiled. And in 1978, Pinochet finally lifted the state of siege and the curfew, declaring an amnesty. In 1980, there was a slow process via voting to end military governments. Finally, in 1988, the Chileans voted to end the Pinochet government. He left office in 1989, with Patricio Alwin being the first democratically elected president since 1969. Chile basically went through a, a struggle from, from political unsureness with so many political parties to finally a military government leading with fear and killing their citizens to d a dem democratic election. So they kind of went full circle. And for guerrilla movements in El Salvador. So for to start off with, El Salvador is a small country. It's only 6 million people, and the only resource it has is its rich farmland to grow crops. 
It was, however, it was plagued with severe land tenure problems, with 2% of the population owning 60% of the land. This 2% was known as the 14 families, as it was only 14 families that owned this much land, with the rest being small plots of land. And the main crash co cash crop in here was coffee, kind of like Brazil. And it was at the mercy of international markets, as well as the boom and bust cycle, like many other e agrarian economies that I previously talked about. So the first instance of revolution in El Salvador came from this guy called Ferrabundo Martí. And what he did was he led thousands of peasants in 1932 to try and overthrow the government. However, he, they were caught and killed, but his actions would inspire future generations. With the Cold War in mind, the USA saw itself supporting any anti-communist military dictators, and Martí himself was viewed as communist. So they began supporting the Contras, which is, but it's this really big scandal where the USA was supporting them and selling them so many weapons, and they were selling those weapons to other people. In 1970s, there was no work for the expelled Salvadorian workers who had previously gone to Honduras looking for work as they were coming back. And per capita in El Salvador, it fell from 2.5% every year from 1970 to 1974. Basically, economically, there was not enough jobs, unemployment was high, and the economy was in shambles. In 1972, the military faked election results and took over. They received support from Nicaragua, Guatemala, and USA. And there was revolutionary movements of leftist ideologies that were becoming outraged at this blatant unfairness. So the largest of these revolutionaries was the Ferrabundo Martí Liberation Forces. Sound familiar? It's that first guy's name. They, they basically based it off of him, which is kind of cool. They were a guerrilla group, and one of their members was named Carapunto Carpio. And what he was famous for was him and a group of other revolutionaries used violence like kidnapping and ransom. They kidnapped and ransomed $50 million from the 14 families. And over time, other groups turned to this worldview and saw violence as the only way to save El Salvador because it worked. So the military, not wanting to deal with this, they decided to ignore newly founded right-wing death squads as they killed demonstrators and anyone that would promote leftist ideologies. Among these were priests and religious workers. So the consequences of all this. Violence escalated with anti-guerrilla and paramilitary squads flourished, with the military doing nothing to stop them. One of these groups, Orden, or, or Organación Democrática Nacionalista, terrorized rural areas and attacked religious workers and anyone, women, children, anyone that they deemed necessary. So the USA's involvement with this added military equipment and a lot of money. In 1974 to 1976, aircraft, counterinsurgents, and training was all provided by the USA in order to in the in order to fight communism and suppress the revolution. However, after 1976, the US had stopped military aid with the corruption scandal previously mentioned where they were reselling the guns and stuff they got from the USA. However, El Salvador was still able to get weapons from Europe and Middle East, and the military dictatorship rigged elections and abused human rights. So, what happened was by 1984 USA was spending $196 million and they were sending it to the Salvadorian military in order to put down the revolution. And they were basically putting so much money in and everyone saw what the government was doing with that money that other countries like France and Mexico disagreed with what they were doing. There was efforts by Mexico, Panama, Venezuela, and Colombia 
to establish a peace plan that was rejected by President Reagan as he was so invested in sending so much money that they couldn't just, they were too stubborn to just let it go. By the late 1980s, El Salvador was the third largest beneficiary of USAID, being set $5 billion to destroy the FMLN or the Fawagabundo Marti group. So Reagan justified it as protecting democracy and stopping the spread of communism, despite there being no evidence of them receiving foreign aid from the USSR or other socialist countries. By 1990, the FMLN began talks with the UN and they agreed upon respect for human rights and land reforms that were promised and guaranteed. In 1992, former guerrilla groups turned to political parties and they finally won their first presidential election in 2010. However, the cost of this instability was 75,000 Salvadorians were killed and 1 million of them fled the country. Because of this instability, gang violence began setting its roots within the country. And as of now, there was 10% of the 6.3 million population being involved with these gangs. So it is still unstable. For liberation theory in the Caribbean and Latin America. So liberation theory is liberating the poor from their situation. That's the basics of it. First, it started with the evaluation of the in inequity and inequality in economic and social conditions in Latin America. The person that started this, his name was Gustavo Gutierrez, and in 1960, he decided to look at the problem of poverty from a, widepread, a widespread perspective, including ideas of Marxism. In 1968, there was a conference in Medellin, Colombia, called the Conference of Latin America Bishops. After this, Catholic priests and nuns began shifting their preachings to the poor rather than the rich. And Latin Americans saw the hypocrisy of the re religious values the majority of them preached and held dear compared to their socioeconomic situation. Gutierrez eventually published a book called Liberation Theology in 1971 that called for social justice and equity to be included in sermons. And in 1979, there was another conference called the Conference of Latin America, which officially condemned all forms of violence. However, Commitment to liberation theology proved dangerous with over 850 priests and nuns that were tortured, murdered, expelled, or arrested within the first leader in Medellin and this one. The Archbishop of El Salvador, Oscar Romero, called for this to stop publicly, and he was then assassinated while officiating mass on the 24th of March in 1980. Basically, anyone that was against this decided to use Biden's to support this. And the impact of this was that it created enormous frustration among peasants and workers in Latin America. It also created a burning desire for change for anyone that wanted it because they felt like they needed to be in a better situation than they were considering the religious values that they had. So for Nicaragua in the liberation theory, in the 1970s, there was young priests and priestesses who began spreading it in Nicaragua. However, they were under a dictatorship. This dicta dictatorship was called the Somoso dictatorship. And because of that, there were many Nicaraguans that supported revolution. One of these groups was called the Sandinistas, which was a guerrilla group. They toppled the dictatorship in 1979 through violent means and connected religion and politics. However, the Pope condemned this in 1983. That is how Latin America reacted in many different ways from country to country to the political developments with elements of the Cold War. Mm -hmm.